Welcome back to another section of reading from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. My name is Chris Fogel, and I'm a pastor at House of Grace in Southern California, and I'm also an author. And um, we've been reading through Mere Christianity. We're nearing the end. We're in book four, which has a primary focus of being around the Trinity. And I would say that these chapters that we're going to read today maybe don't have the meatiness of some of the earlier chapters, uh, and not necessarily in a bad way. Some of it is a little bit difficult to get through in, in some ways. And not that this is fluff, um, but it is so good how C.S. Lewis describes the Trinity and explains and the how the persons of the Trinity relate to each other and um, blasphemies about, you know, certain persons of the Trinity not being God and those kinds of things are maybe inadvertently addressed here. And there are other topics, uh, how God is outside of time and how he uh, can answer um, millions of prayers at the same time and those kinds of things. So it's very interesting stuff. So we're in book four, and we're going to be reading chapters three, four, and five, which will be for us chapters 25, 26, and 27. So let's go ahead and get started. Chapter 25 is titled Time and Beyond Time. It is a very silly idea that in reading a book, you must never skip. All sensible people skip freely when they come to a chapter which they find is going to be no use to them. In this chapter, I am going to talk about something which may be helpful to some readers, but which may seem to others merely an unnecessary complication. If you are one of the second sort of readers, then I advise you not to bother about this chapter at all, but to turn on to the next. In the last chapter, I had to touch on the subject of prayer, and while that is still fresh in your mind and my own, I should like to deal with a difficulty that some people find about the whole idea of prayer. A man put it to me by saying, I can believe in God all right, but what I cannot swallow is the idea of him attending to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment, and I have found that quite a lot of people feel this. Now, the first thing to notice is that the whole sting of it comes in the words, at the same moment. Most of us can imagine God attending to any number of applicants if only they came one by one and he had an endless time to do it in. So, what is really at the back of this difficulty is the idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Well, that is, of course, what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along, and there is room for very little in each. That is what time is like, and of course you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future, is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future just as we do. But many learned men do not agree with that, 
It was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 in every other moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has all eternity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. That is difficult, I know. Let me try to give something not the same, but a bit like it. Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her work. Next moment came a knock at the door. End quote. For Mary, who has to live in the imaginary time of my story, there is no interval between putting down the work and hearing the knock. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book, and for as long as I pleased. And the hours I spent in doing so would not appear in Mary's time, the time inside the story, at all. This is not a perfect illustration, of course, but it may give just a glimpse of what I believe to be the truth. God is not hurried along in the time stream of this universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. He has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you had been the only man in the world. The way in which my illustration breaks down is this. In it, the author gets out of one time series, that of the novel, only by going into another time series, the real one. But God, I believe, does not live in a time series at all. His life is not dribbled out moment by moment like ours. With him, it is, so to speak, still 1920 and already 1960, for his life is himself. If you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B, and we cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God, for above or outside or all round, contains the whole line and sees it all. The idea is worth trying to grasp because it removes some apparent difficulties in Christianity. Before I became a Christian, one of my objections was as follows. The Christians said that the eternal God, who is everywhere and keeps the whole universe going, once became a human being. Well then, said I, how did the whole universe keep going while he was a baby or while he was asleep? How could he, at the same time, be God who knows everything and also a man asking his disciples, who touched me? You will notice that the sting lay in the time words. 
while he was a baby? How could he at the same time? In other words, I was assuming that Christ's life as God was in time and that his life as the man Jesus in Palestine was a shorter period taken out of that time, just as my service in the army was a shorter period taken out of my total life. And that is how most of us perhaps tend to think about it. We picture God living through a period when his human life was still in the future, then coming to a period when it was present, then going on to a period when he could look back on it as something in the past. But probably these ideas correspond to nothing in the actual facts. You cannot fit Christ's earthly life in Palestine into any time relations with his life as God beyond all space and time. It is really, I suggest, a timeless truth about God that human nature and the human experience of weakness and sleep and ignorance are somehow included in his whole divine life. This human life in God is from our point of view a particular period in the history of our world from the year A.D. 1 till the crucifixion. We therefore imagine it is also a period in the history of God's own existence. But God has no history. He is too completely and utterly real to have one. For, of course, to have a history means losing part of your reality because it has already slipped away into the past and not yet having another part because it is still in the future. In fact, having nothing but the tiny little present which has gone before you can speak about it. God forbid we should think God was like that. Even we may hope not to be always rationed in that way. Another difficulty we get if we believe God to be in time is this. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. But if he knows I am going to do so and so, how can I be free to do otherwise? Well, here, once again, the difficulty comes from thinking that God is progressing along the timeline like us. The only difference being that he can see ahead and we cannot. Well, if that were true, if God foresaw our acts, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do them. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them because though you have lost yesterday, he has not. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them because Though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. You never supposed that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you are doing. Well, he knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way, because he is already in tomorrow and can simply watch you. 
In a sense, he does not know your action till you have done it. But then, the moment at which you have done it is already now for him. This idea has helped me a good deal. If it does not help you, leave it alone. It is a Christian idea in the sense that great and wise Christians have held it and there is nothing in it contrary to Christianity. But it is not in the Bible or any of the creeds. You can be a perfectly good Christian without accepting it or indeed without thinking of the matter at all. And that ends chapter 3. So, now we're going to move on to our chapter 26. And this is called Good Infection. I begin this chapter by asking you to get a certain picture clear in your minds. Imagine two books lying on a table, one on top of the other. Obviously, the bottom book is keeping the other one up, supporting it. It is because of the underneath book that the top one is resting, say, two inches from the surface of the table instead of touching the table. Let us call the underneath book A and the top one B. The position of A is causing the position of B. That is clear. Now let us imagine, it could not really happen of course, but it will do for an illustration. Let us imagine that both books have been in that position forever and ever. In that case, B's position would always have been resulting from A's position. But all the same, A's position would not have existed before B's position. In other words, the result does not come after the cause. Of course, results usually do. You eat the cucumber first and have the indigestion afterwards. But it is not so with all causes and results. You will see in a moment why I think this is important. I said a few pages back that God is a being which contains three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube contains six squares while remaining one body. But as soon as I begin trying to explain how these persons are connected, I have to use words which make it sound as if one of them was there before the others. The first person is called the Father, and the second the Son. We say that the first begets or produces the second. We call it begetting, not making, because what he produces is of the same kind as himself. In that way, the word Father is the only word to use, but unfortunately it suggests that he is there first, just as a human father exists before his son. But that is not so. There is no before and after about it. And that is why I think it important to make clear how one thing can be the source or cause or origin of another without being there before it. The son exists because the father exists. But there never was a time before the father produced the son. Perhaps the best way to think of it is this. I asked you just now to imagine those two books, and probably most of you did. That is, you made an act of imagination, and as a result, you had a mental picture. Quite obviously, your act of imagination was the cause and the mental picture the result. 
But that does not mean that you first did the imagining and then got the picture. The moment you did it, the picture was there. Your will was keeping the picture before you all the time. Yet that act of will and the picture began at exactly the same moment and ended at the same moment. If there were a being who had always existed and had always been imagining one thing, his act would always have been producing a mental picture. But the picture would be just as eternal as the act. In the same way, we must think of the Son always, so to speak, streaming forth from the Father, like light from a lamp or heat from a fire or thoughts from a mind. He is the self-expression of the Father, what the Father has to say. And there never was a time when he was not saying it. But have you noticed what is happening? All these pictures of light or heat are making it sound as if the Father and the Son were two things instead of two persons. So that, after all, the New Testament picture of a Father and a Son turns out to be much more accurate than anything we try to substitute for it. That is what always happens when you go away from the words of the Bible. It is quite right to go away from them for a moment in order to make some special point clear. But you must always go back. Naturally, God knows how to describe himself much better than we know how to describe him. He knows that Father and Son is more like the relation between the first and second persons than anything else we can think of. Much the most important thing to know is that it is a relation of love. The father delights in his son. The son looks up to his father. Before going on, notice the practical importance of this. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Of course, what these people mean when they say that God is love is often something quite different. They really mean love is God. They really mean that our feelings of love, however and wherever they arise and whatever results they produce, are to be treated with great respect. Perhaps they are, but that is something quite different from what Christians mean by the statement, God is love. They believe that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And by, and by that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know this is almost inconceivable, but look at it thus. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or club or trade union. 
They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. And then there's a footnote that says, This corporate behavior may, of course, be either better or worse than their individual behavior. And that's the end of the footnote. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it is not a real person. It is only rather like a person. But that is just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person. As in fact, the third of the three persons who are God. This third person is called, in technical language, the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God. Do not be worried or surprised if you find it or him rather vaguer or more shadowy in your mind than the other two. I think there is a reason why that must be so. In the Christian life, you are not usually looking at him. He is always acting through you. If you think of the Father as something out there in front of you and the Son as someone standing at your side, helping you to pray, trying to turn you into another Son, then you have to think of the third person as something inside you or behind you. Perhaps some people might find it easier to begin with the third person and work backwards. God is love, and that love works through men, especially through the whole community of Christians. But this spirit of love is from all eternity, a love going on between the Father and the Son. And now, what does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or, putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? But how is he to be united to God? How is it possible for us to be taken into the three personal life? You remember what I said in chapter 2 about begetting and making. We are not begotten by God. We are only made by him in our natural state. We are not sons of God, only, so to speak, statues. We have not got zoe or spiritual life, only bios or biological life, which is presently going to run down and die. 
Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always has existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has, by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And that ends chapter 4 or our chapter 26. The next chapter, chapter 5, our chapter 27, is called The Obstinate Toy Soldiers. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. We do not know, anyway, I do not know, how things would have worked if the human race had never rebelled against God and joined the enemy. Perhaps every man would have been in Christ, would have shared the life of the Son of God from the moment he was born. Perhaps the bios or natural life would have been drawn up into the Zoe, the uncreated life, at once and as a matter of course. But that is guesswork. You and I are concerned with the way things work now. And the present state of things is this. The two kinds of life are now not only different, they would always have been that, but actually opposed. The natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, and especially it wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. It is afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. And in a sense, it is quite right. It knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed, and it is ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. Did you ever think when you were a child what fun it would be if your toys could come to life? Well, suppose you could really have brought them to life. Imagine turning a tin soldier into a real little man. It would involve turning the tin into flesh. And suppose the tin soldier did not like it. He is not interested in flesh. All he sees is that the tin is being spoiled. He thinks you are killing him. He will do everything he can to prevent you. He will not be made into a man if he can help it. What you would have done about that tin soldier, I do not know. But what God did about us was this. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself. 
was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone, and stone here is British for pounds, not pounds like money, of course, as in weight. He's simply saying that he would have, uh, he did weigh a specific amount. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. The result of this was that you now had one man who really was what all men were intended to be, one man in whom the created life derived from his mother allowed him, excuse me, allowed itself to be completely and perfectly turned into the begotten life. The natural human creature in him was taken up fully into the divine son. Thus, in one instance, humanity had, so to speak, arrived and had passed into the life of Christ. And because the whole difficulty for us is that the natural life has to be, in a sense, killed, he chose an earthly career which involved the killing of his human desires at every turn, poverty, misunderstanding from his own family, betrayal by one of his intimate friends, being jeered at and manhandled by the police, and execution by torture. And then, after being thus killed, killed every day in a sense, the human creature in him, because it was united to the divine Son, came to life again. The man in Christ rose again, not only the God. That is the whole point. For the first time, we saw a real man. One tin soldier, real tin, just like the rest, had come fully and splendidly alive. And here, of course, we come to the point where my illustration about the tin soldier breaks down. In the case of real toy soldiers or statues, if one came to life, it would obviously make no difference to the rest. They are all separate. But human beings are not. They look separate because you see them walking about separately. But then we are so made that we can see only the present moment. If we could see the past, then of course it would look different. For there was a time when every man was part of his mother, and, earlier still, part of his father as well, and when they were part of his grandparents. If you could see humanity spread out in time, as God sees it, it would not look like a lot of separate things dotted about. It would look like one single growing thing, rather like a very complicated tree. Every individual would appear connected with every other. And not only that, individuals are not really separate from God any more than from one another. Every man, woman, and child all over the world is feeling and breathing at this moment only because God, so to speak, is keeping him going. Consequently, when Christ becomes man, it is not really as if you could become one particular tin soldier. It is as if something which is always affecting the whole human mass begins 
at one point to affect the whole human mass in a new way. From this point, the effect spreads throughout all mankind. It makes a difference to people who lived before Christ as well as to people who lived after him. It makes a difference to people who have never heard of him. It is like dropping into a glass of water, one drop of something which gives a new taste or a new color to the whole lot. But, of course, none of these illustrations really works perfectly. In the long run, God is no one but himself, and what he does is like nothing else. You could hardly expect it to be. What, then, is the difference which he has made to the whole human mass? It is just this, that the business of becoming a son of God, of being turned from a created thing into a begotten thing, of passing over from the temporary biological life into timeless spiritual life, has been done for us. Humanity is already saved in principle. We individuals have to appropriate that salvation. But the really tough work, the bit we could not have done for ourselves, has been done for us. We have not got to try to climb up into spiritual life by our own efforts. It has already come down into the human race. If we will only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it was fully present, and who, in spite of being God, is also a real man, he will do it in us and for us. Remember what I said about good infection. One of our own race has this new life. If we get close to him, we shall catch it from him. Of course, you can express this in all sorts of different ways. You can say that Christ died for our sins. You may say that the Father has forgiven us because Christ has done for us what we ought to have done. You may say that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You may say that Christ has defeated death. They are all true. If any of them do not appeal to you, leave it alone and get on with the formula that does. And whatever you do, do not start quarreling with other people because they use a different formula from yours. And that ends that chapter, and it ends our reading for today. So uh, God bless, and we'll see you next time.